Hello, Digital Nibbles listeners. We know you've been anticipating the revisit of some of our most exciting episodes, and the time has come. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode we've pulled from the vault. I'm Allison. And I'm Ruth. And this is Digital Nibbles. It's March 28th, and we're, you're here for another episode of Digital Nibbles. I'm Allison Klein, and I'm joined by my co-host, Reuven Cohen. And we've got a guest in the studio with us. If you're up for it, Reuven, we should just introduce her right now before we go to news. Is that cool? Sure. Yeah, let's, let's do it. So um, today, our entire episode is dedicated to an interview with Amber Case. Welcome, Amber. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. We're so excited to have you. Um, obviously, a lot has been said about you lately. Um, you are a frequent talker out at tech conferences, most recently at South by giving a keynote. Um, I recently saw your TED uh, speech, and you are a cyborg anthropologist. Um, why don't we just start there and just uh, say, what is a cyborg anthropologist? And then we'll go to the news and see how cyborg anthropology will relate to the news of the day today. Great, sure. So uh, a, a quick definition of cyborg anthropology is that it looks at the intersection between humans and technology. And of course, that's nothing new because anthropologists, you know, they studied people with tools and there were kinship rituals and things like that. But the biggest difference between uh, early anthropology and anthropology today is that we've all become these kind of digital natives. So instead of going out to another another country and looking at somebody as an other type of person and then writing up a paper as if they're a subject, we've all become subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest difference between the technology that we've seen early on is that it's always been an extension of the physical self. So you know, a hammer extends your fist, a knife extends your ability to you know chomp on something, or a car extends your ability to move. But suddenly we have this new form of technology that extends the ability of our mental selves. And it's almost completely invisible. I mean, you get this little, mm-hmm. this little device that gives you a portal into this imaginary universe, technically, that's completely invisible unless you turn on the screen. Um, and that, because it's so invasive and pervasive, it becomes really important to study it, uh, kind of with a, a tool set and, and from an objective uh, point of view. Uh, and then you can understand, you know, how is it affecting us over time? Um, how are we going to um, deal with it over time? How is it evolving uh, versus just being melded into it without really even noticing? So, Riven, how do you feel about being a subject? You know, it's, it's, cyborg anthropologist is, is one of those uh, titles that, uh, you know, I, I, I would long for. It's, it's one of probably the most creative, uh, you know, job title I've ever heard. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I certainly have some questions for you today. Yeah, I think both Riven and I have a lot to ask you about the very rich field that you just described. But first, I'm going to go to the news of the day. And first thing I'll throw out, um, interesting correlation. On this day in history, Three Mile Island partially melted down in 1979. And Lady Gaga was also born. So uh, we have those two things coming together. And in the middle of that, um, also today, Jerome Friedman's birthday. He won the 1999, excuse me, 1990 Nobel Prize for Physics. I'm not sure how the, all those things correlate, but I think that they're all interesting factoids. Any comments, guys? You know, on the last show, we had Pi Day, which was also Albert Einstein's birthday. I think we've moved, uh, I'm not sure if we're moving up or down, but Lady Gaga's (laughs) birthday and and Three Mile Island, there's got to be a correlation there somewhere. I think that the only thing that I'm taking away from this is that we're always having digital nibbles on an interesting day. 
And uh, hey, why not Lady Gaga for for a computing show? Um, one that was interesting to you, Amber, Google patents ads based on environment. It's very curious. Uh, you know, it's, it's a natural extension, right? If you have a giant sensor or set of sensors in your pocket for temperature and speed and light, of course, people want to correlate ads with it. Mm-hmm. The only issue is that, you know, a lot of people talk about, hey, I'm going to make this app or platform that allows you to send ads to people. And I always ask them, I always say, well, would you like to use that? And they say, no, no, of course not. <laughs> right? So like if you're, if you're in traffic for maybe you know, two or three hours more than usual, maybe you want a coupon, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a deal. Maybe it's something that helps you out. Maybe it says that you haven't been out of the house for three days and your friend should come over. And that's less of an ad uh, than a social connection. And I think that's better than getting spammed with umbrella notifications from 20 different apps that, you know, Google's been trying to sue <laughs> when the rain starts, you know. But corporate um, marketeers all over the world are very nervous about what you just said, Amber, because it's going to mean that they can't just buy banner ads and, and call it a day anymore. That's great. That's, what, that's a relief. <laughs> I mean, that you know, there's only enough real estate and there's only enough real estate in your mind and in your pocket for, uh, um, for notifications. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of times people, well, they're put on pause sometimes, right, when they, when they wait in line or they wait for a bus stop. And so they take out their phone, which makes the phone kind of a new kind of cigarette. You know, you smoke a cigarette when you're, when you're waiting for something and, and now you take out your phone and poke around. But there's just not enough room and space to put, you know, 50 notifications in there like you would on a web page. So people hopefully will learn to curate or people won't use their technology. Yeah, the, the other day I was walking down the street here in Toronto, and I uh, it was kind of minding my own business. And next thing I know, I was sent a text message from the store that I happened to walk by. I have no idea how or why they they managed to text message me, but you know what? I felt like I, well, I was my privacy was almost invaded. But you know, I never asked them to text me, so it's just well, kind of no, no. It's like I, I can't figure out how they managed to do that. I got a text at about 1.30 in the morning last night, and it was an ad like that. And let's just say that that made me a little upset because it woke me up. Yeah, it should know that you're sleeping, that you haven't moved for a long period of time, and you're probably asleep. Now, that would be good. Now, the Hunger Games made $155 million last weekend. Did either of you see the Hunger Games or read the books? No. (laughs) Has anyone um, read or seen the film Battle Royale. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I, I can't watch The Hunger Games because it's like a... It's a it's the takeoff of uh, the Japanese original. Yeah, and I think what it is is, you know, the, the person who wrote it denies it, right? And I, and I don't have any cause to say that, you know, they actually did it. But when a society progresses to a certain point, you get the same type of literature out of it. So mm-hmm. the fact that we had Battle Royale and society was ready for it 10 years ago in Japan and, you know, United States is generally maybe 10 years behind in technology and and societal shifts. Like now it means that we're at the age of what Japan was 10 years ago. (laughs) Riven, did you see it? No, I didn't. But it's certainly, it's it's interesting that it got so much attention and buzz. I, you know, the, the, I don't know much about the stories. I can't say I've read the book, but it, that, and I know, I, I'm, I find it interesting that, that we're so intrigued by this concept of what is it? I think, children who are competing for their lives, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> it's a light topic, Ruben. <laughs> we'll be there soon. 
on digital nibbles. We'll have our own version. Yeah, it'll be five-year-olds programming, uh, you know, little nanobot uh, biotech stuff and uh, virtual kick-me signs on each other's back and augmented reality goggles and things like that. It'll be pretty vicious. I see, in the augmented re- you know, reality glasses, I think Google came out with those. I was looking at those online the other day. Those would be actually pretty cool, you know? It's like life's a video game with those things on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the the biggest issue with those wearable heads-up displays is the moment that they give you more social clout than when you didn't wear them is when they'll be adopted by everybody. <laughs> but right now, it still makes people look like a nerd unless you're ironically wearing them. So final one before we go to break, guys. Um, and this one made me feel old. Uh, the Smithsonian Institute exhibit on video games, starting with the first Ataris and ColecoVisions and televisions. Um, my producer, Bird, and I both have a, a very... Uh, uh, serious history with all of these machines in our youth, and, and, and we like to talk about them. Nintendo, Sega Genesis, Dreamcast, to uh, the Xbox 360, Wii, and PlayStation 3. So apparently video games have made uh, it to the point where they can be curated in a museum. What do you think? Actually, they have a, they have a video game exhibit in the Computer History Museum in uh, somewhere in California near Palo Alto. Uh, but the problem is they don't upkeep the hardware very much. So some of them are broken. So, oh, you know, yeah. you can go in and play. So, you know, you can play Centipede and Pole Position and Missile Command and all those. And um, and some of the other ones, Tempest. Oh, Tempest is good. Yeah, it's an awesome game. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was desperate for an Atari. And my parents said that it was going to destroy my brain. So they bought <laughs> me a one of those Radio Shack computers. Oh, and wow. so I had to hack away on that thing. Try to, so I tried day and night to try to get my Atari games to work on my on my uh, Tandy computer, I think it was. Oh my god! And I never, I never, never managed to get it to work. But luckily, it, it was uh, <laughs> the sort of inspiration for for getting into technology. So I guess it worked out. You know, I think that video games is a a very common inspiration for getting into the world of tech. So I think that we can thank the Smithsonian Institute for featuring this exhibit, and it's running through the end of September for those who want to go. And I did not get a promotional uh, award from the Smithsonian for mentioning that, just for the record. I think we're going to go to break, and we will be back uh, 100% with Amber, Cyborg Anthropology, and what that's all about. But let's give it two minutes. If you've got any questions, please tweet them in to our Digital digital Nibbles uh, Twitter account, or send them via the chat window on Blog Talk Radio. And we're back on Digital Nibbles Live. Uh, we're here with Amber Case, cyborg anthropologist. And we just had a very fascinating conversation of news of the day. But let's go to our central topic, which is the field of cyborg anthropology and the, and the studying that you're doing, Amber. Let's just start off. Um, in the beginning of your TED Talk that uh, you gave, I believe, last year, uh, you talked about the fact that we're all cyborgs. And this is something that I've heard you quoted on a number of times. What what um, brought you to that perspective, and and what does that mean for all of us? Sure. Well, the the idea of a cyborg came from a 1960 paper on space travel of Klein's and Klein, um, two interesting guys who wrote about uh, a person putting on a spacesuit and going to space. That mm-hmm. a cyborg was somebody who could attach an external po- component or set of components in order to adapt to new ambient environments, and space was 
probably the best example, but the fact is that we've been doing that for a long time. You know, we can go up to the Alps one day and then go as a scuba diver, uh, you know, later on, and that generally um, animals don't tend to do that. So uh, I kind of think of humans as crustaceans. They tend to shed all of these objects and grow new ones or go to the store and get new clothes, and they're very curious. Um, the idea that we're all cyborgs came from Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, mm-hmm. which kind of launched the idea of applying um, anthropology to technology in earnest in, popu- in popular culture. Um, before that, starting in the, 19, uh, in the 1940s, they had these things called the Macy meetings, where there are all these technologists and anthropologists, cyberneticists, and they got together and they said, there are these giant machines out there. And one day they're going to be small enough that they'll be in our pockets or they'll be, or everyone will have one. And right now we're using them for military purposes. But what's going to happen to the fabric of society when we have these extremely powerful things that are larger on the inside than they are on the outside and that they're at everyone's disposal? So let's start to talk about it. So they talked about feedback loops and control and all the cybernetic theories. And later on... Um, uh, there were a number of people, say uh, John Seeley Brown, who started to hire anthropologists to work at companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of them, Lucy Suchman, is, is credited with creating the green button on the printer, <laughs> that you only need one button, that these engineers were creating these extremely difficult-to-use systems. And when she came in, she figured out that, you know, you just need a, a green button, mm-hmm. right? And that there was this big disconnect between how technology works and how people who know the language of technology and how humans interact with that, with that technology. And that's more of a legend story that isn't actually how it went, but it's a really good story. Um, but she did work um, and in that environment and help you know, people understand how to interact with technology. That actually people had to interact with technology, so it's the value to a human being that matters, not necessarily technology for technology's sake. Yeah, and the most important part is that early on, people learned, well, they learned the language of computers, or you know, they, they dealt with computers and they had to give them all these instructions. But a normal person couldn't you know, press a button and have that translate into machine language. So the most important thing later became the interface. I was just going to say, I'm looking through the, the show notes here and, and your, your resume. You, you seem to really cover a lot of stuff here. You've got sort of a background as a designer. You've, you've started a variety of things like the Cyborg Camp, which is much, much cooler than the, 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 the Cloud Camp that I was involved in founding. But, uh, um, you know, wh- one of the things that really jumps out at me here is, is you really seem like a bit of a futurist. And I think you were described when, uh, when the team first told me about you as someone that's from the future, you know, and you're, a lot of what you talk about is sort of, you know, very forward, futuristically thinking. You know, what, you know, what, what would you describe your 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 job as? You know, you know, in the, in the most simplistic way, a cyborg anthropologist. Like, wh- what really, what really do you do? Well, I guess uh, the term cyborg anthropology will will probably fade into the background over time because, really, it's just an extension of anthropology. It's let's look at this new set of interfaces. Let's look at this new way, you know, that people could interact with computers. Um, And a lot of it goes into digital archaeology. So when you say, you know, I'm from the future, it's really that I'm looking 30, 40 years in the past to where the future was unequally distributed. So people like Steve Mann at MIT, people at Park Research, they did all of this stuff that I talk about that I try to, you know, push into reality through companies or events or when I design something for a client. I try to follow the rules that were set up in the 40s when they could prototype the future and they had a working model of the future for maybe 20 or 40 people. 
really expensive future at that point, totally not equally distributed. But they already figured out all of these systems. And so what people do when they use technology now is no one ever looks back at the giant paths that have already been made by these people, these institutions. They don't dig it up. And the thing is, it's really hard to dig up. And even if you do, it's ugly, it's boring. You know, maybe you have to do a find and replace. And instead of identity and virtual reality, replace virtual reality from a 1980 paper with, with Facebook. And suddenly it all makes sense. Oh, that's a good point. It's these people who simulated the future without knowing what the future would be. You know, there's this Japanese, future, this Japanese futurist named, uh, named Masuda. And he got a grant from the Japanese government in the 70s. He said, what would happen if I took all these televisions and connected them together so you could send a signal back through the television? Mm -hmm. And so he set up this little thing. He got millions of dollars to do this. He made this little village. And I think it was 50 or 100 people who participated. And he set up a photo and sharing service so you could take pictures and send them through your television to other people and people could vote on them. You had your own personal news channel or podcast channel. You had miniature education channels and he just saw what emerged. And then he had people rank what they liked on the services. So he basically made YouTube and Flickr and Instagram and all these different all these different systems, revolutionized education, and wrote it into this book called The Information Society as Post-Industrial Society. It sounds like a boring name. You read it, and it's all of the stuff that's going on right now. He categorized it into different things. It was one of them was the the information voluntary society, where there would be a bunch of people who, instead of getting paid to do their work for 40 years, would in their free time contribute information voluntarily to a community because it gave them self-actualization. And this is basically what's behind Wikipedia and all of these other group, uh, group sites of, of knowledge. Uh, so I try to go back, which makes me more of an, a you know, digital paleontologist, trying to sift through the layers of you know, digital stuff to try and get to the first people who came up with these ideas and experimented with them over, over years and years. You know, Amber, the, another interesting thing that you talk a lot about um, is not just the technology trends and how they relate to society, but also something that you touched on at the beginning of the episode, the concept around a shift in tools from physical to mental or emotional. And, and you said something about a, a wormhole from a mental perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you mean by that? Sure. Well, that all came out of, you know, when my dad sat me down when I was little and he would start to tell me about the world. So uh, the, the problem was, I don't know what happened, but I don't think I don't think I had a lot of kids books. <laughs> so my dad would try to get me to go to sleep. So he'd come home from work really late at night and he would try to tell me you know, a story or he'd tell me how something worked. And, you know, sometimes, you know, on a Saturday, he'd say, you know, what's the shortest distance between two points? And of course I was like, oh, it's a straight line. You know, you told me that yesterday. And then, you know, he would draw point A and point B on a piece of paper and fold the paper over until AB touched. And he said, that's the shortest distance. I said, you can't just fold the paper over. And he said, well, maybe you could. What would happen if you could? I said, well, that's, <laughs> you know, we were talking about space travel. If you were in a spaceship, just, just combine space and time together and, and fold it over itself. So of course every night, I had insomnia and I couldn't go to sleep. And I kept thinking of, in the future, is there some way I can figure out how to bend time and space and get something to be sent faster or send someone faster? And when I started doing my research in, in college, I found out that that cell phone is the wormhole in everyone's pockets where you are point A and you click and you're connected to point B. And temporarily, space and time is compressed 
And your identity, even though it's not you personally, but your identity shifts over to the other person for a limited period of time. That's not not the type of questions I had uh, or for my parents. But so we we've sort of delved into quantum mechanics and string theory here. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting to to think about. It's a some wide of these, array of topics you know, on digital nibbles this week, Ruth. Yeah, you know, because we, we've been uh, tossing around the, getting some of the quantum guys here in Canada from, I think, uh, Waterloo to, to come on the show. And that's kind of the stuff they're talking about is the ability to have sort of, you know, information that sits in two places at the exact same moment that can be transmitted across the entire universe in an instant. You know, really, really interesting tech. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but uh, it's, it would certainly be cool if we could do that. You know, one of the things that, that I really find interesting that, that you say frequently is, is the idea that, that we're, we are cyborgs. And, and technology, in a sense, is becoming part of sort of our, our personal sort of space. You know, the, the, as you said, the phone is now it would be kind of modern-day cigarette, hopefully a lot less uh, hazardous to our health. But it becomes part of kind of our, our you know, the status symbol, the way we are. And, and it's interesting to see that. You know, taking that and let's say looking out 10, 20 years, how do you see that sort of integrating into the fabric of our lives? And I'm not trying to sound like a cotton commercial there. <laughs> the fabric of our lives. It's cotton. Um, so thanks for the question. Uh, you know, I think about it in two ways. So, so, you know, a fun way to think about the future is, one, you can think about it extremely dystopically. And then the other way you can think about it in an extreme utopia. And what really happens in the future is you get an equal distribution of utopia and dystopia based on your geographical location and your socioeconomic class, right? Mm -hmm. So right now we have the same amount of utopia and dystopia as we had at the beginning of, of human history. Uh, it's just, you know, it looks a little bit different. There are a lot of people with access to great technology and power, and there are a lot of people that aren't. Uh, so the best book to read about that subject, I think, and, and the, the problem is that it's an adolescent book, um, but it didn't come out when, you know, the majority of people building software right now were adolescents, so a lot of people skipped it. Um, and then, of course, you know, a lot of adults haven't read it, but it's called Feed by M.T. Anderson. And it's all about how, you know, you have phones and, you know, the feed, and you can have all this information about people. And it's integrated into people's heads, right? So you can think and and get this information. It's really about the reduction of time and space around communication. So you get, you know, the short speak, <laughs> the kind of 1994 uh, future speak. And the book came out before feeds came out. So it came out before Twitter. Facebook just released the feed uh, probably a week after I read the book. And it was this big, this big deal, this big controversy. Um, but the idea was that, you know, somebody who was just a year older than, say, their brother was in a completely different social environment, you know, a whole filter bubble. Mm -hmm. And the worst part about it was that if you, you know, you created a purchasing profile on the internet, and if it was good enough, then that brand would sponsor your health insurance, your school, everything. And if it wasn't very good, um, and you didn't buy enough stuff, well, then you couldn't get support. So the protagonist is a very wealthy person, well, he's from a wealthy family, and he falls in love with this girl who's from a poor family. And she has to save up to go visit the moon. And of course, when you get to the moon, you're spammed by a bunch of uh, banner ads and your heads up display. It's horrible. And, you know, there's hackers trying to hack into your, your ocular implant. And, and you know, I, I think the worst thing that, that could happen is if we get embeddable technology. Because if you think about it, technology is super volatile, right? So if you have it in your hand... You can always turn it off. You can always throw it away. You can always upgrade it. If it's embedded into your hand or your, or your ocular cortex, 
um, then you have to go to, you know, the Apple hospital or whatever, and you have to get health insurance and, and go under surgery every time you want an upgrade. Plus, if you get a virus in the system, that affects you as well. Um, so it becomes difficult for people to access. Also, you know, it's kind of the life extension drugs. I always think of those as who decides who gets to live longer or shorter? You know, is it just somebody with a lot of money? It really brings a new meaning to virus. You know, a virus on my computer, you know, it's going to delete my data maybe, corrupt my operating system, but it's not going to, you know, fundamentally uh, cause me physical harm. Well, and ultimately this gets to kind of a theme that has been threaded through this entire conversation around the types of devices that are created. Um, you mentioned sensor networks. You mentioned phones. You know, one of the things that I'm curious about, and, and you, if you, you mentioned actual cyborg attachments, which is, you know, a, a view of the future, whether utopian or dystopian, depends on how you feel about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, how do you know from an anthropological standpoint what the devices of the future are going to look like? You know, is the, the you know, you, to the green button comment, is the rectangular shape the right shape or should something be shaped like an apple or a pineapple? Um, and, and how many devices should we expect to be interacting with us or interacting with each other to create data pools that influence what we're seeing on our screens? I think of the phone and the tablet uh, as the portable cave wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, you have kind of a slate in your hand and you're communicating. And, you know, cave walls were used for communication and then it turned into parchments. And those parchments could be sent all over, you know, the old world. And so you had the first internet, which is like, uh, a 700 baud modem over one month or something, <laughs> you know, like one kilobyte per month, um, you know, data speed, right, really slow. Um, and, of course, you know, that, that really could be considered, considered one of the first internets or one of the first, you know, ways of storing something outside yourself. Sure. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I usually just go back to Star Trek and they have tablets and they share information on tablets. Um, of course, you could share, yeah, you could share information to somebody's glasses, but that's not as theatrical, right? Mm-hmm. Because you wouldn't be able to see anything. Right. You could share it directly to, you know, their visual cortex and have them hallucinate something. But then there's all sorts of privacy and filtering concerns around that. So, the idea of having it external to you means you can always make a choice of whether or not you want to accept that information. Whether you want to give somebody access means you just hand them a tablet versus, you know, setting up permissions. Of course, it's going more fluid, right, where there are less interfaces between sharing something. There's less time and space between sharing something, less distance between people. And so, you know, the main thing is people say, oh, no, the the computers are taking us apart. And in reality, this has been said since every single technology has come out. You know, the landline telephone, they said, oh, no, everyone's going to be schizophrenic and sit there in their room and talk into nothing, you know, and, and it's going to make everyone in, in a room and never and never socialize. But the whole point of the telephone is it increased socialization. You could suddenly talk to everybody. Right. And you could plan to meet them in person much faster than you could, you know, via a telegraph or a, or a letter. Right. And so I think what's happening with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and email is that a lot of people are finding that people are like them, even though they're not in the same geography. And then they're using it to meet up. So they're using it, have these massive conferences, these big groups of people. And then it's it's totally social and that people use it to get in the same room with somebody else. It's not really a substitute. It's a placeholder for somebody not being physically next to you. 
So you you think that the underlying human desire is always going to be that face-to-face communication, and this is just a proxy. I think so. I mean, in some cases, the you know, <laughs> looking back at this, most of the papers are about virtual reality, right? We're going to have 3D virtual reality, and we're going to have, like, boxes in our rooms where we can immerse ourselves. And really what happened is it became a mixed reality. Mm-hmm. And that the human brain doesn't need three-dimensional shapes to conjure up, you know, love or, or something like that. All they need are, is two dimensions. You know, the idea is you can play Pokemon and be totally engulfed in a game. You can read two-dimensional text on a page and like the character in the book better than your next-door neighbor and know them better than your next-door neighbor. And so with Facebook, that's totally immersive virtual reality. You get a like on Facebook and you get a physiological jolt all of a sudden. It really means something. You know? and, and so the thing is the brain stitches the rest into it. And so you don't need as much visual stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you know, text is usually the most efficient. You don't need all these weird interface elements. Like the best technology is, is the one that's invisible and gets out of the way and lets you live your life or connect to people. It's, it's certainly interesting to think that the, the, the way we interact with people is, is not just one that's, uh, you know, visual or, you know, audible, but the actual, you know, I guess what you're describing as the intimacy in terms of social networks and how you interact with people both you know and probably don't know that well and how that's, that's becoming a central part of the, the story here as we sort of move into this, uh, you know, 21st century view of technology and mobile and all the things that are really enabling this, this type of massive shift. You know, a lot of our, our, our conversations that, that Allison and I have on the show revolve around cloud computing and kind of this move into sort of a web-centric environment, one that's, you know, interconnected, everything, the worldwide sort of Internet of Things. You know, I guess the last question I really have for you today is, is you know, maybe some of your thoughts on how, and you know, this kind of, you know, the Internet being the sort of central point of, of contact is really going to kind of, further our, our sort of personal relationships with people and so forth? That's a, that's a good question. I, I think that everyone might be geographically distributed. You, know, you can't choose where you're born, but everyone wants to find the tribe that they're a, a part of. And uh, the way to do it often is on the Internet. You know, maybe you don't have somebody in the village or the city that you grew up in that shares your same interests. And maybe you feel like you don't have a role in society because it's very confusing (laughs) with all the things you can do and everything's uncertain. But if you find other people who like what you do or, you know, are are human, then then you feel better and you feel connected. And I think everybody just wants to be connected um, because we're social creatures. Um, So (laughs) I, I think that's kind of the thing of we've moved past just needing a cave and a place to be, you know, there's a lot of people now that are educated sufficiently that they want self-actualization. They want to do something that's meaningful. And, you know, it, it, there, there was a study where if you make up to, you know, $60,000 or in some places it's a little bit more. After that, it doesn't really matter how much more you make on top of that. What matters is if you have meaningful work. Right. And so I think, you know, using the Internet to connect uh, to people and interests is more fulfilling than doing the same job for 40 years. And so I think there's a, a dramatic shift towards that state, and that's what we'll see, you know, a, a lot of the kids right now shifting towards if they don't get really fragmented. The, the, the big thing I worry about, I guess, is when I started on the Internet, there wasn't much of an Internet. You had to create it. You had to create every page. You had to create every interaction. You had to put the text up there. You had to sculpt and architect that thing. And now there's so much that's been sculpted and architected. There's more to consume than there is to create. 
And so I do worry about people going on the internet that's already been created and not having to create anything and that they just become hyper-consumptive and, um, and addicted. Um, I get very addicted and my withdrawals from connectivity are severe. I get extremely cranky. Um, I get overwhelmingly mad if I can't connect. And that never used to be the case. I would, if I were disconnected, it'd be, oh, what am I going to do next time I'm on the internet? Oh, I'm gonna build this thing and this thing, it's be awesome, and I drew it on paper. And so I think there's this shift going on there. So instead of a source of frustration, it became a source of uh, inspiration in a way. Yeah, it was a limited supply of connectivity. Interesting. Well, Amber, it's been wonderful having you on the program. I can't believe we're at the end of the episode already. We have so much more to talk to you about. So hopefully you'll accept an invitation at some point to come back to Digital Nibbles and talk to Riven and I again. Riven, do you have any final words? You know, it's certainly an interesting episode. I've heard everything from we're being described as crustaceans to uh, paleon, <laughs> digital paleontology. I, I think I've heard uh, about 50 blog posts in my future out of this one show. Uh, Amber, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been, it's been a great show. Uh, definitely uh, a thought-provoking show I, I won't soon forget. Thanks a bunch. It's been fun to be here. So, Amber, one final question for you before we leave. If our audience is interested in engaging with you, where should they go to learn more? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Case Organic. That's probably the fastest place that I reply. Um, you can go to caseorganic.com, cyborganthropology.com, and geoloki, G-E-O-L-O-Q-I.com, which is the software I'm working on that uh, that takes advantage of, of your location and uses it so that you can be more powerful versus some company just sending you ads. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the program. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. I think our next recording date is actually up in the air, so I won't announce it right here. But uh, stay tuned on Digital Nibble's website, and we'll be posting our next recording date in the second week of April.